Well, good morning again, Sun Valley Church. It's good to be with you, even in this format. We're hoping and praying that this will end soon, but as, as has been our custom of late, uh, we're just uh, doing with what we can and uh, going forward as God allows. Uh, we'll be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, so if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn there with me and uh, um, pray that God will do His work in us and through us. You've heard the answers to the question, uh, why someone thinks they'll be in heaven after they die, right? You've, you've heard all this, uh, well, I'm a good person. I'm just as good as the next guy. I've tried to do my best. I go to work. I work hard. I try to be kind and fair. I'm trying to be a good parent. I'm honest most of the time. I, you know, all these things we've heard uh, in answer to the question, you know, do you think you'll be in heaven? Well, I'm hoping today's sermon from Philippians chapter 3 will help you think clearly about the issue of what is true Christianity. What is it that will truly allow you access to heaven one day? What is true Christianity? This chapter, Philippians chapter 3, is such an important part of the Bible. In this chapter, Paul teaches so many basic truths about authentic Christianity about faith, about acceptance with God, about living for Jesus, and a host of other very important doctrines. All this in this one chapter of Philippians 3. We're going to be spending a little bit of time here for the next few weeks because of all that's here, but today is going to be more of an overview or maybe even a partial overview of the first 15 verses of Philippians chapter 3. In our last sermon last week, we covered verses one through three, and I'd like to read those for you right now just to remind you of where we've been. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We covered that last week, and we learned there in last, the last sermon that gospel partners are commanded to be joyful. We are commanded to be joyful. Secondly, we're commanded to beware of false doctrine and false teachers. And then thirdly, we're told to be aware of who we are in Christ. What does a gospel partner Christian look like? Well, that's the question we answered last week. And Paul's going to continue explaining that in verses 4 through 15. From verse 3 alone, we learned that a gospel partner means that we have an authentic relationship with God. He says we are the circumcision. We are the ones whose hearts have actually been touched by God. We also are the ones who authentically worship. We worship God by the spirit of truth who, indwell, who indwells us. And then from verse 3, we also learned that Jesus is the person we boast in. Jesus is who really matters to us most. What's most important to a gospel partner Christian is Jesus himself. And then finally, at the end of verse 3, we learn that gospel partners possess authentic humility. We don't, we don't put our trust in our flesh and what we can accomplish or what we can do or who we are. We put all of our trust, all of our hope on Jesus himself. Today's passage verses 4 through 15, demolishes the arguments of those who think that their goodness and their own merit will satisfy God. It seems that many think that God grades on a curve. Are you one of those that thinks that if I'm better than the next guy, then 
God will let me into heaven or I'll be accepted? Well, let me tell you that getting into heaven isn't like running from an angry bear. If you can just outrun the guy next to you, you're going to survive a bear attack. Not so in heaven. Let me read for you verses 4 through 15 now from Genesis, or Genesis Philippians chapter 3. Uh, and, and by the way, verses 4 through 15 of Philippians 3 is just an exposition of verse 3. He's explaining verse 3 of what it means to not depend on the flesh. Putting no confidence in the flesh is explained in the verses I'm about to read. Listen as I read. Though I myself have reason for such confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death and by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not only have I already obtained this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. This is an exposition of verse 3 that says, we put no confidence in the flesh. And I, wanna, I want to just uh, ask you to be careful not to exclude yourself from this description of authentic Christianity because you think that Paul is in a different category. Paul's an apostle after all. I, I want to encourage you not to think that way because what Paul is describing in these verses must be true of every believer. Do you call yourself a Christian? Then these verses must be true of you as they were for Paul. The question that I want to answer today is how does Paul describe the Christian life here? And, and beyond just answering that question, I want you to compare your own view of the Christian life with Paul's. Does your view of Christianity match Paul's view here described in these few verses? Let's look at this, and I have three points. I hope you'll be looking at the outline that's provided in our weekly liturgies on our website. But the first point is this, as the first point of overview. Christianity is taking hold. Christianity is taking hold. The Christian life must possess us. The Christian life must master us. 
I'm going to begin down in verse 12 because I think that verse 12 is a real basic summary of the Christian life. Look at verse 12 with me. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to, take, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What a summary of the Christian life. Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. This is what we, the first point I want to make here. Christianity is taking hold because Christ takes hold of me, of us, if we're Christians. It all begins here. Christ has made me his own. Christ has taken hold of you if you're an authentic Christian. Isn't that where our faith begins, with Christ? Unless God, in his mercy and grace, reaches down and takes hold of me, I will never come to him. I will never find my way to God. Jesus says much in John 6, 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is the fundamental basis, the fundamental beginning point of our relationship with God, of anybody's relationship with God. Christ must take hold of us, and if he does take hold of you, what do we see here in this verse 12? We will reciprocate. We will take hold of Christ. If Christ takes hold of you, you will take hold of Christ. Paul emphasizes this in verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own. If Christ takes hold of you, friend, you will take hold of Christ. If Christ Jesus has made you his own, all the other things in your life will fade into the background. All your efforts at self-justification will end. Everything that forms your personal identity outside of Christ will melt away like ice on a hot black pavement. Since Jesus has taken hold of Paul, Paul was now doing everything he could to press on to take hold of Christ. You remember these verses, right, from Psalm chapter 119? Verse 5, oh, that my ways would be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies I delight as in all riches. In verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for all of your testimonies. In verse 36, we read, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. These verses that we've studied already back in Psalm 119 remind us of this is what it means to take hold of Christ, to pursue Christ, to want Christ. Once he has taken hold of you, Christian friend, your, your reciprocation is simply taking hold of him. You may say, well, Pastor John, I've, I've never had a dramatic conversion like the Apostle Paul had on the road to Damascus. How do you expect this of me? Well, Paul would answer, that's not the point. The point is not your conversion experience. The point is that when Jesus saves anyone, he takes hold of them and never lets them go. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and I will not let any of them go. And then, of course, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, how we are not able to escape the love of God. Those that Christ has taken hold of will reciprocate and take hold of him 100% of the time. You see, becoming a Christian isn't like picking up a new hobby and then discarding it like our New Year's resolutions. No, it's a response to having an authentic encounter with God. 
God has taken hold of you and injected himself into your life and your experience, regenerated your soul, given you a new heart, and left his Holy Spirit in you to complete the job, complete the work. And remember back in verse 6 of, of chapter 1, Philippians, he who began a good work will complete it. This is what being taken hold of Christ means. It, it's him coming to you, grabbing hold of your heart. And then if, if he does that, your response, my response. Being a Christian begins with a work of grace and continues with a response of love and commitment. It's a reciprocal taking hold of one another. First Christ taking hold of you and then you responding by taking hold of Christ. There are no half-hearted Christians because we have a full-hearted Savior who did not save you halfway. Any half-hearted response to God's grace proves to be a false response. Being a lukewarm Christian, we read in, in Revelation chapter 3, causes a gag reflex in God. If he has taken hold of you, Christian friend, your response will be a taking hold of him. Christianity is also change. Not only is, is Christianity what we just discussed here, uh, taking hold of, God taking hold of you and you taking hold of God, it's also change. It, it leads to a completely different worldview. Look at verses 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christianity is change. Our values, outlook, interests all change. After listing all the things that would be very, very valuable to the world in verses 5 and 6, Paul said it was nothing. He, he disregarded it. This is Paul's testimony of a complete reversing of his worldview. The things that he thought were important now are nothing to him. And by the way, it's the same transformation that takes place when anyone actually encounters Christ. If he has taken hold of you, things change. Everything changed for Paul once Christ took hold of him. This is how it should be for all of us. Look at verse 15. Paul wrote, this is how mature Christians think. Christianity isn't something we just add to our lives because we've heard there's good benefits. Like it's helpful in your business to be a Christian, to be able to put that ichthus on your business card. I might get you some more business, or it might be good for raising a family to become Christians and attend church someplace. No, friends, Christianity is a complete transformation of your affections at the deepest level. Either Christianity is central to your life or it's not part of your life. There's no place in Jesus or Paul's teaching for half-hearted Christianity. You remember Luke 9, verse 23 through 25. Let me read that for you quickly, or parts of it. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then lose his soul? This is what it means to change. Christianity is change. Friends, if, if Christ is not controlling your life, then your Christianity is not what you think it is. 
Please don't think that you can live out the Christian life in compartments. There's no such Christianity. This is what Paul meant in verse 8 when he wrote, I count everything as loss. When Christ grabs hold of you, you reciprocate and grab hold of him and everything else fades away. There remain no competitors in your life with Christ. Paul said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Some say, Pastor John, I, I have so much baggage from my past life, I just can't seem to stay consistent and keep my focus on Christ. I keep drifting back into old habits and patterns. What did I just read from 2 Corinthians 5.17? The old is gone, it's passed away, now the new has come. Look at verse 13 also in chapter 3 of Philippians. What does Paul say there? Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. I'm not saying that you won't struggle with sin. Paul struggled with sin. I'm saying you'll actually struggle with it. You'll fight against it. You'll be winning the battle against sin. You will work hard at killing it off. When Christ enters your life, the old passes away, the new comes. Paul had all sorts of baggage he was dealing with. We know of Paul's life. He intentionally forgot all that stuff and pressed on towards Christ who had taken hold of him. Look how it worked for him. Look how it worked for Paul here. Uh, if Christianity is change, then what changed in Paul's thinking? Well, first of all, his view of himself changed. Right? He was once a proud, self-made man. Now he was humble and completely dependent on Christ and boasted in that dependence. All those things listed as assets in verses 5 through 6, he now considered liabilities. He once looked down on others who weren't as accomplished as him. Now he viewed himself as the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. He viewed himself differently. He also viewed God differently. His view of God prior to his conversion was defective. Before he believed that God was satisfied and, and all had, Paul had to do was be religious, he thought God was okay with that, with externalities. He thought he could approach God on his own terms, by his own righteousness, by his own merit. But now, what do we see in Paul? Just here in, in chapter 3, a humble acknowledgement of only through Christ am I acceptable to God. He now, and by the way, this is the only place in the New Testament Paul uses this term, but now Paul says, Jesus Christ, my Lord, in verse 8. Not just the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of the universe, but now he's Paul's Lord. Is he your Lord? His view of God changed. God was no longer a tyrant to be appeased in Paul's mind. He was a friend to be trusted. Paul loved and did everything he could to get to know Christ now, whereas before he feared God in a, in a servile way. Thirdly, not only did his view of himself change, his view of God changed, Paul's view of life changed. If Christianity is changed, 
These are the things that changed in Paul's life, his view of himself, his view of God, and his view of life, everything going on around him. He used to value things in life that the world valued. He valued pedigree, education, tradition, position, status, all those things listed in verses 5 and 6. Now all that's changed. Now his life is about Jesus Christ. Remember what he said back in verse 21 of chapter 1? For me to live is Christ. All life is Christ for me. And to die is gain. His life stopped being about advancement, about promotion, about social acceptance, and began being about knowing Jesus better and making much of him at every opportunity. His view of death, which is also part of life, his view of death changed. Death no longer held Paul in fear because it was simply the doorway to being with his beloved Jesus. He also viewed those that were different from him differently. In his life, he had a lot of acquaintances, a lot of connections, and he used to look down on people that weren't like him. In fact, he used to call Gentiles, those who weren't Jews, dogs. But now, after his conversion, after Christ took hold of him and he took hold of Christ, what did he call Gentiles? Beloved brothers. Paul's life changed. How must our lives change? How must our, must our lives change, friends? Just like Paul, we must view ourselves differently, we must view God differently, and we must view life differently. And in life, we should view our circumstances differently than those who don't know Jesus. We should view death differently than those who don't know Jesus. We should view people differently than those who don't know Jesus. All these things changed for Paul. Have they changed for you? The reason Paul views the list of accomplishments in verses 5 and 6 as loss, he calls them rubbish, because if viewed as necessary, if viewed as meritorious, they would rob him of the great gain of all that is in Christ. They are the same dangers to us. Trusting in or resting on worldly accomplishments, worldly accolades, rob us of Christ and the joy that comes with taking hold of Christ. We lose, friends, if we leave room in our affections for anything other than Christ. They should be lost to us, rubbish to us like they were for Paul. Things change. Christianity is taking hold of Christ in Christ taking hold of you. Christianity has changed from the old to the new. And thirdly, Christianity is worth it. Christianity is worth it. The list of Paul's losses in verses 5 and 6 is impressive. I doubt any of us will probably lose as much as Paul did, but our losses will be just as important as Paul's. He gladly turned his back on his pedigree, his education, his status, his reputation. I seriously doubt that Paul had a personal retreat to evaluate whether or not he was willing to give up all these things for the sake of Christ. I think Christ was so excellent in his view that the choice was a no-brainer for Paul. It's like, but not even close to this illustration. If I brought a $500,000 Bentley over to your home and said, I'd like to trade it with you for your Ford Escape, would you hesitate very long? Would you ask me for some time to evaluate and think about it? Would you go out into your backyard and pace back and forth for an hour or two, reminding yourself of all the good things you like about your Ford Escape? Of course not. If I offered you a $500,000 Bentley, you would shake my hand immediately and say, thank you very much. Here's my Escape. It would be a no-brainer. 
That is like what every authentic Christian faces when they encounter Jesus Christ, when Christ takes hold of us. We gladly leave everything and take hold of him. It's the great exchange for what we used to value for Christ. Paul described it in verse 8. Look at verse 8 again with me. Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's, it's like Jesus' parable of the man who found a pearl of great value in the field and then went and sold everything he had to get enough money to buy that field. It was worth everything to him. This explains why Paul was so willing to give up everything because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So what is knowing Jesus? What is it about knowing Jesus that is such surpassing worth? First of all, how about this? The person of Jesus Christ himself. Because it is the knowledge, this knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus is the knowledge that brings us into an immediate, direct, and personal contact with the most glorious, attractive, and complete person who has ever lived. We are actually in relationship with perfection here. Remember that Paul had studied under Gamaliel, the world's leading educator. Paul studied under him. Remember that Paul knew all the apostles personally. But none of those people were worth leaving everything for. Only Jesus Christ could do that for Paul. As humans, we put a lot of stock in who we know. I met so-and-so. I'm friends with this, that person, or that athlete. Friends, what's on the table here is the king of the universe, a relationship with the God, the creator of all things, Jesus Christ himself. The surpassing worth of knowing him. It's worth it because it's Jesus we're talking about. Secondly, the salvation of Jesus Christ. This knowledge secures our salvation. It is through our knowledge of Jesus Christ that we see our sin for what it is and we see Jesus for who he is. This divine knowledge actually gives the path to forgiveness peace with God, and an eternity with Jesus Christ in glory forever and ever. This knowledge allows us to access Jesus' payment for our sin and keeps us from having to pay the penalty of our own sin throughout eternity. This knowledge, this surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus, we must pass on to our children. We must pass on to our neighbors and our friends and our loved ones. And this knowledge has eternal and infinite value. Would we exchange anything for this knowledge? I don't think we would. This is why Paul said everything else in comparison to Jesus Christ is rubbish. It's worthless. Has Jesus taken hold of you? Have you taken hold of him? Do you want your understanding of Christianity to matches, match Paul's description of it here in Philippians 3? Does your life match this description? Jim Elliott, a missionary to South America who was killed for his attempts at bringing the good news of Jesus Christ, with, killed for bringing the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ to natives in Ecuador, 
said this in his journal, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He wrote that when he was 26 years old. Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot gave up everything for Christ. He was intellectually brilliant. He was socially connected. He was athletically gifted. He had the world by the tail, but when he was 26, he gave it all up and went to the jungles of Ecuador with this in his hands, the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ, to pass on to those who didn't know him. He was no fool. This must be our Christianity, Sun Valley Church. If it's not, examine whether or not Christ has taken hold of you. You know if he has taken hold of you by simply looking at your life. Have you taken hold of him? Has your life changed like Paul? Has your view of yourself, your view of God, your view of life changed like Paul's did when he encountered Christ, when Christ took hold of him? Oh, friends, it is so worth it. This is what we've been called to. We have been called to take the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, this knowledge that saves, this knowledge of an infinite loving creator who wants to be in relationship with us. Take that knowledge and apply it to your own life. Share it with your friends. Share it with your children. Live out this reality. Pray with me and let's ask God to do this for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we come now after hearing these tremendous words of the Apostle Paul, who was taken hold of by Christ, we, we hear the words here from Philippians chapter 3 that are so challenging. I ask by your mercy, Lord Jesus, that you would do this work of grace in us, that having taken hold of us, we would in turn take hold of you with all of our might, all of our affections, would turn towards you and away from the things of this world, those deceptive things that promise everything and give nothing. Let's, Father, help us take hold of Christ. Father, now as we enter into a new week, we ask that you would do these things for us so that we could work them out in our lives on a daily basis for the next seven days. God, do this for us, please. Be glorified in us. Bring your joy to us as we pursue you completely. And I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.